West, Westgate Chapel, good morning. It's good to see you. Let's worship Jesus together. Come on. In my wrestling, in my doubts, in my failures, you won't walk out. Your great love will lead me through. You are the peace in my troubled sea. Oh, you are the peace in my troubled sea. In the silence, you won't let go. In the questions, your truth will hold. Your great love will lead me through. You are the peace in my troubled sea. Oh, you are the peace in my troubled sea. My lighthouse, my lighthouse, shining in the darkness, I will follow you. Oh, my lighthouse, my lighthouse, I will trust the promise. You will carry me safe to shore. Tomorrow brings with each morning I'll rise and sing. My God's love will lead me through. You are the peace in my troubled sea. Oh, you are the peace in my troubled sea. Oh, you are my light, my lighthouse, my lighthouse, shining in the darkness. I will follow you, oh, my lighthouse, my lighthouse, I will trust the promise, you will carry me safe to shore, safe to shore, safe to shore, safe to shore. You will lead us through the storm. Fire before us, you're the brightest. You will lead us through the storm. Say, fire before us, you're the brightest. You will lead us through the storms. Fire before us, you're the brightest. Go ahead and have a seat and take a look at the screen.
Good morning and welcome to Westgate Chapel. We are so glad you chose to worship with us today. My name is Steve Fisher and I'm the pastor of student ministries here at Westgate. Thanks for joining us. We are especially excited that you're here because we are kicking off a brand new series this morning in the book of Mark. Hopefully you've had a chance to grab your sermon notes on the way in. Those are always available to you on the entrance tables from one of our ushers or you can find them on our Westgate Chapel app. And one of the things you will see this morning is that we have inserted scripture reading plan in your sermon notes and also have it available for you on our app. Our goal for this series is to be reading a chapter of the book of Mark together as a whole church family each week in anticipation of all that God has for us as we gather together each Sunday morning in our services. If you are a guest, thanks for joining us. We hope you will find Westgate, a place where you can easily and deeply connect into relationship that will help you grow deeper in your relationship with Jesus. One of the first steps in getting connected into the life of our church is to fill out a connection card. You'll find it in the pew in front of you or on the app. Take a moment to fill that out. And at the end of the service, head out to the main entrance and to our guest center where there's a host who would love to answer your questions that you may have. We also have a small gift for you just to say thanks for being here. Even if you've been attending Westgate for a while, we'd love to invite you to fill out the connection card as well. Let us know if you have any prayer requests. We love the opportunity to pray for our church family each week. Then drop your card in the offering bucket when it passes by later in the service. You can find the connection card on our Westgate app as well. Before going any farther, we'd like to take a few minutes and tell you about something exciting that's coming up here at Westgate. So check this out. This year's VBS is called Twist and Turns, How Following Jesus Changes the Game. Each summer, we host hundreds of kids in our building for an entire week. The purpose of this week is to help kids grow deeper in their understanding of who God is and how much He loves them. Join us for a brand new way to participate in VBS. We want everyone to be involved, even if you can't help out that week. We know some of you aren't available during VBS because of work or physical limitations, but we want you to be a part. This year, our whole church will be able to help us prepare for VBS by playing our giving game. There will be three ways to play. Number one, purchase items from our Amazon wish list. Number two, buy a specific item described on the game. Or number three, you can make a cash donation. All donations will be due May 14th. Take a look at the postcard in today's sermon notes for more details and then visit the W Cafe to check out our complete giving game. We can't wait to see how God can use the generosity of our church to reach our community with the good news about Jesus this summer at VBS. Once again, thank you so much for joining us at Westgate. Remember, if you need further information on any of our events, head to our website, westgatechapel.org events, or check out our app. But for now, I invite you to stand up and greet someone you have not said hello to yet this morning. Enjoy the service.
y'all join me as we pray and continue worshiping together? God, we thank you so much for bringing everybody here. Father, we thank you for bringing um, just bringing us here to worship you, God. That is why we are here more than any other reason. We think we get to fellowship and talk to one another, but God, above everything, we're here to honor you because you are worthy of all the praise, God. We just came through this Easter season, and we acknowledge that you are the risen Christ, Father. We, uh, we acknowledge that you are who you said you were, that you did what you said you were going to do, God, and you have offered us a way to eternal life, Lord, and we thank you for that. We give you praise, God, above everything. We give you praise simply because you are God, because you are worthy. But it's in your holy and precious name that all God's people pray. Amen.
God praise. Thank you. Thank you, yes, sir. Thank you, God. As we continue to worship together, I was just thinking about something as we sing that bridge. There is no greater love. There is no greater love. When I try to explain to my son how much I love him, how much as a father we, and the parents we love our children, or brothers we love our sisters, or sons and daughters love our parents, think about whatever love in your life, someone you love, think about how much you love them, and know that it pales in comparison to how much God loves you. Because God didn't just love us because we were his children. No, God loved us when we were still his enemy. He loved us enough to die for us. As we were just singing that. We sang it in the first service, and it, it, and it didn't hit me like it just did. That's how the Holy Spirit works, right? the type of love that we think we know we experience here on this earth guys and gals it pales in comparison to how much God loves us because he died for us he gave his life for us while we hated him while we were his enemy while we were out for ourselves we didn't care about anything else that's how much God loves you since we continue to sing I don't know we'll get into this song here but as we continue to worship that's why we sing to him, because he is God above everything else. That's why. But think about what he did for you. Think about how much he loves you. Because nothing compares to that. Amen? Amen.
we praise you. We worship you, Lord God. Father, I just think about the fact that we, we just last week together, we celebrated your resurrection. And Father, we just continue that praise. That should be a celebration of our heart every single day, Lord, that we would wake up and that we would, we would walk out a life of gratitude for the debt that you paid for us. Father, that we would um, step into the, the fullness of life that you have for us. You have such a gift to offer us, Lord. Just don't let us forget. I pray that um, we don't get into a place where life is actually living us and we're forgetting to walk in the fullness of life that you give us. So, Father, we just ask that you would be our first thought in the morning our continual thought throughout the day, Lord, in every moment, in every way that you would equip us. Be our sufficiency, Lord God. In your name we pray, amen. And now, 
Um, before Pastor Rob comes to speak, let's continue in worship through the act of giving. If you're sitting on the center aisle, just take that offering bucket and pass that out to the edge. Thank you so much. church family. How are you this morning? Good, good. It's good to be back and worshiping uh, together. Uh, my name is Rob Zerman, lead pastor here at Westgate. And uh, again, if you're a guest here with us today, just super grateful that you have chosen to worship with us uh, and join us today for our service. Uh, I wanted to take just a moment as we uh, begin this morning, as I did in the first service, uh, just to thank uh, a number of people that uh, helped and put a lot of excellence into our Easter services last week. Um, we have such an incredible team of not just a staff team here at Westgate, but lay leadership, you guys within the church. Church, uh, who have participated to make those services so excellent. Uh, our worship arts team, uh, especially uh, Pastor Adam, Pastor Nick, put our Good Friday service together and did a lot of the planning that was behind that, did just an excellent job of creating a service of worship for us. Our creative team uh, that worked with them uh, as well, uh, we had a host of people from our facilities team having the facility beautiful and ready to go, to our guest services team welcoming people in the doors, our kids ministry, welcoming in our family doing the little Easter egg hunt thing outside. There were so many great things, and I just want to thank everyone who put such excellence in to have uh, just great services, but even more to welcome our community and to welcome people into our services. And so would you pause with me this morning, just thank everyone who participated in those services, putting your excellence to it. The Lord, uh, the Lord is good. Amen. The Lord is good. We had nine people pray to receive Christ for the first time last week at our Easter services. We love that. 50 people who prayed to surrender their heart anew to the Lord and just begin that new journey with him. Uh, and it has been exciting to see how uh, God is moving in this church and in our hearts and lives as we surrender to him. I'm excited, but especially just thankful again for everyone who has put uh, so much excellence uh, into our weekend uh, together last week. As we, uh, as we begin this morning and get into the Word, start a new series together, I was thinking about just how to begin uh, this series. And uh, when I was a youth pastor, one of the things that I always did was uh, a lot of times I would play a game with people right before we would start into a teaching to kind of grab everybody's attention, kind of give them an idea of where we were headed. And uh, I'm going to do that with you here this morning. One of my favorite ones when I was working with junior high and high school students. How many people have ever played the game Two Truths and a Lie? Anybody here? Great, a number of you. Uh, I would encourage you, if you've never done that before, do that this week. Like if you're getting together with your life group or driving home with your family, uh, it's a really great way to get to know people just a little bit better. Uh, two truths and a lie is essentially this, is that a person shares two things about themselves and their past or their history that are true, and then one thing that is a lie. And the idea is to share them, not say which is which, and then have people guess and try to figure out what is the lie that was shared. And the whole point of doing this is it's a meant to test how well you actually know someone. So I'm going to put you to the test to see how well you know your pastor. If this is your first Sunday, you get a pass this morning, all right? But if you guess, 
Fantastic. Here we go. I'm going to give you two truths and one lie in no particular order just about myself. First thing is this. At some point in my life, I worked as a florist. That's number one. Number two, I have traveled to 12 different countries, okay? Trying to keep the straight face so you guys can't figure out what's right and what's wrong. Uh, The third thing, uh, when I was younger, I went to the spelling bee, okay? So there are three things. And what I want you to do is tell me when I go through them, which one you believe is the lie? What is not true about me, okay? So the first thing is this. How many people believe that this is a lie, that I worked as a florist at some point in my life? Can I see a raise of hands? Who thinks that's a lie? Okay, okay, good, good. Okay, number two, uh, that I have traveled to 12 different countries. How many people think that that is a lie? Let's see, all right, a couple hands, great. All right, this next one that I, when I was younger, went to a spelling bee. Uh, That's hurtful, people. (laughs) Like, I know what what you're thinking. We love our pastor, but he's illiterate. Okay, so, all right, all right, that's fair. You guys ready? All right, first one, worked as a florist. Absolutely true, okay? Worked as a florist for a very short time. The reason I stopped working as a florist is because uh, I made this really beautiful, for a funeral, this really beautiful cross. It looked kind of like the one on the wall there, except it was filled with roses and things. And then I had to deliver it to the funeral home. And when I got to the funeral home, the person said, hey, would you take that up into the chapel and put it next to the casket? Okay, and I kind of got the eebie-jeebies about that, but whatever. I walk in, and it's completely pitch black. And the further down the, the, the walkway I get, I realize that the casket is open. And I start to panic and get the sweats. I set the cross down in the middle of the room, and I left. And, and yeah, that was that. I was never doing that again, so I was terrified. I promise I don't do that anymore, okay? Just, just being honest. But So worked as a florist for a time. The next one. I have traveled to 12 different countries. That is totally a lie, okay? I have traveled to eight different countries. I have, if I can try to remember which ones, uh, Israel, Jordan, Germany, Austria, uh, definitely Mexico and Canada. Do we count those? And then, um, and then, and then uh, a handful of others, uh, Cambodia, Mongolia. Uh, I've traveled through an airport in some other countries, but never truly traveled in others. So, and, and yes, you mean people, I went to the spelling bee. <laughs> And when I won to go to the regional spelling bee in my classroom, my teacher had about the same response as you did. Oh, no. So, anyway, um, the point of doing this game, two truths and a lie, is so that you can see and test how well you know someone. We're going through a series together and beginning a series this morning, going together through the gospel of Mark. And as we go through this series, we're going to be breaking it up into two sections. In the first section, uh, we're going to be going through, it's going to have one specific theme. It's going to be chapters one through eight. And in chapters one through eight, uh, what you will see is at the end of chapter eight, we actually encounter Jesus with his disciples, Peter specifically having a conversation. And Jesus asks his disciples this question that you see behind. Behind us, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? What we see is that what Jesus asks them with this all important question is he wants to know how well do you know me? By this point in his ministry, uh, through these first eight chapters, the disciples have not only been called to leave their life behind and to follow Jesus, but they have had incredible, incredible experiences with him. They have seen his teaching and experienced the depth of teaching like they have never heard before in their life that left people and left crowds astounded. 
They've seen Jesus and his power that he has over physical human life. The way in which he would heal the blind and the mute and the deaf and the leper. Incredible things that he could do. They would see how he had power over the very forces of nature, controlling the wind and the waves, walking on the water. I mean, they are experiencing Jesus in in so many different ways. They saw how he had power over the spiritual realm, casting, speaking to and casting out demons and having authority like they had never seen before. And as they encounter all of these things, Jesus at this point in chapter 8 wants to know, how well do you really know me? Who do you say that I am? And what I want you to catch this morning as we begin this series is that this is one of the most important questions that any of us will ever answer in our lifetime. Because what you believe about Jesus will absolutely dictate the course of your life. If you have a high view of Jesus from Scripture, believing that he is the one that is sent from God for the salvation of our souls, then you will worship him as such and as your king. But if you have a low view of Jesus, maybe he's just that guy that did some good things in the scriptures or the guy you once prayed a prayer to to get your salvation, but you're more concerned about the rest of the world. If you have a low view of who Jesus is, you will find yourselves worshiping many other things in this world beside him. Because how we view Jesus dictates how we will live our lives. As we journey with Jesus and his disciples through these first eight chapters together in this series, we're going to seek to answer this question for ourselves. Who do you say that Jesus is? And based on that, what is its importance for your life? Now, before we dive into the passage together this morning, if you've got your sermon notes, please pull them out. You can use them to follow along in your Bibles. Turn with me to Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, where we will begin this morning. And as you're turning there, I want to give you just a a little bit of background information on Mark itself and himself. Uh, The Gospel of Mark, as you know, is one of what we call the four Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each of these Gospels uh, give to us a picture of the life and ministry of Jesus with his disciples and everything that he did. And what's interesting is that of the four Gospels that we see in Scripture, Mark is widely considered by scholars to be the first uh, Gospel that was written that detailed the life and ministry of Jesus. It was written by Mark, uh, most commonly known as John Mark, who is frequently mentioned in the book of Acts. Uh, Some of you might recall that Mark was the one who deserted Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey. Uh, But it is also believed that he was a traveling companion after that point of Peter traveling with him, listening to his sermons and his teachings as he recounted for the masses that he was sharing the gospel with, all of his interactions with Jesus, the things that he had seen and heard, following the Great Commission and what Jesus told him to do. And it's believed that as Mark traveled with him that he wrote down these words to have an accounting that they could give to future generations of who Jesus was and what he had done and what he had accomplished. And it's believed that Mark himself as well primarily most likely wrote this in Rome and wrote it for Gentile believers so that they themselves would know Jesus. 
As we read through Mark together, especially in these first eight chapters, I want you to see that there is one theme that will stand head and shoulders above the rest. And it's not just in the first eight chapters, it's through the entire book. And it is this, Mark is primarily concerned that you would know who Jesus is. It is the most important thing to him. He wastes no time getting there, but rather what he does in the very first verse is that Mark begins, Roman numeral number one in your notes, by proclaiming the good news of Jesus, the Messiah. He gets directly to the point for you. Read with me if you have your Bibles in Mark chapter one, verse one. Mark begins his gospel by saying, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, as we walk through this, I want to just unpack the power of what Mark says here in this first sentence of his gospel. We read here that it says, the beginning of the gospel. Now, when we hear the word gospel, as in the gospel of Mark, oftentimes what we most commonly think of is like the gospel of Mark, the gospel of John, the gospel of Matthew. We think of gospel in terms of a book, in terms of a set of writings, right? We think of things like a book in the Bible that we we should pay attention to. We think of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but that is not how the biblical writers used the term gospel, nor is it how Mark himself would use the opening line of his historical account of Jesus's life, letter books or literary writings, ever. The Greek word that is used here for gospel is euangelion. Uh, The Greek word was commonly used of reports of victory from the battlefield. If you were to look in the Old Testament when the Philistines defeated troops of Saul at Mount Gilboa, you would have seen that it said that they sent a messenger throughout the country spreading the what? Euangelion. They were spreading the good news of the victory that had taken place in battle. In New Testament times, the birthday of Caesar Augustus was often referred to as euangelion for the world. It was good news for the world because Caesar himself was considered himself to be a god. And so this would be good news for the entire world. Think of it in your own terms of how you might use it within that context. If you get a promotion at work, euangelion, great news. A good grade on a test at school. You score the winning bucket in your sport, sporting event against your rival. Or if you're my daughter Gracie and she beats you, like me, her father and her older brother, 10 times in a row at Uno and then slyly smiles at you like she's pulled one over on you, euangelion, right? Or if she beats you at Yahtzee and always seems to get two Yahtzees in every single game and you're sure that she's cheating, what does she do? She runs around the house and to anyone who will listen, spreading euangelion, good news that she is the victor. Just ask her, she'll tell you. It's all true. Euangelion, meaning good news. In the Greco-Roman world, though, there's something that's very interesting. In the Greco-Roman world, euangelion was always used in the plural. It was always one set of good news among many. But what I think is so intriguing is that in the New Testament, it is always used in the singular. When we speak of the good news in the New Testament, the good news, there is no other good news that is like it. It stands by itself. It stands on its own. Why? Because the gospel or good news, the euangelion, refers to the fulfillment of God's reign and his salvation. In other words, the gospel is not a book. Fill this in. Rather, it is a victorious proclamation of the good news. It's a victorious proclamation 
of the good news. And we see that as we continue to read through the passage of how Mark is going to help us to understand this truth. He says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus. In other words, letter B, the gospel is embodied in the person of Jesus. The gospel is more than a set of truths. It's even more than a set of beliefs. The gospel is embodied in a person, the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, the kingdom of, that God inaugurates is bodily present within Jesus of Nazareth. Literally, Jesus' name that he was given at his birth. In Hebrew is a variant of the name Joshua, which means what? God is our salvation. And it says that the gospel is embodied in Jesus, Jesus Christ. Now, what does Christ mean? I want to give you just a little hint because I did a little study this week to figure out there are a lot of people in this world that believe Christ is the last name of Jesus. Not true, okay? Jesus Christ. Christ is not a last name. Rather, it is a title. And the title means Messiah, Christos or Christ is the Greek form of a Hebrew word that is translated Messiah, and it means anointed one. In other words, the one that has been sent by God. It was a word that was used in the Old Testament of Israelite kings. It was also used of what the Jews believed was the great eschatological deliverer to come. Any Jewish reader who would have read this opening sentence would have immediately recognized the very depth of what Mark was saying. Letter C, that Jesus is the Messiah who's been sent from God. There is no ifs, no ands, no buts about it. He is the one that they have long been waiting for. And what I want you to catch this morning, just looking in this first sentence, is this. Is that for those of you who think about preaching styles, it's often been said that there are a couple different types of preaching styles. Uh, inductive and deductive. Anybody here ever heard those terms before? Inductive preaching is the idea that you journey through the text uh, together to discover the conclusion at the end. A deductive sermon is one where you start with the conclusion and then you dig through the scriptures to investigate what led to that. What you see here, make no mistake, in the book of Mark, Mark is employing a very powerful, packed, deductive sermon for you. He begins with the end, and he wants you to understand from the very get-go, Jesus Christ is the Messiah sent from God. And what you will see in the weeks to come as we travel through the scriptures together is that he is now going to show you proof of Jesus' life and all of the things that he did and accomplished to make that, help us to understand how true that statement is. The answer is clear. Jesus is the Messiah sent from God who has come to bring salvation to the world. And as Mark continues, he moves now quickly in verse 2 into sharing a prophecy, a prophecy about the Messiah, but also about a messenger who is going to come. And we understand from the verses that follow that that messenger that is to come is John the Baptist. And we see here, Roman numeral number 2, that as a prophet, John the Baptist himself was also a fulfillment of prophecy in the book of Isaiah. Mark chapter 1, verses 2 through 3, Mark says this, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. 
What we see here is that letter A, John was sent by God to prepare the way for the Messiah. That was the calling that was placed on his life, the very purpose of his ministry. As we'll see in verse 4, uh, again, the messenger here is, is John the Baptist, the one who is sent, who will herald the coming of the Messiah. And what I find interesting is that in these two verses, three times we see the use of the word of way or the use of the word path. It says a messenger will prepare your way or prepare the way of the Lord or make his paths straight. What I want you to notice is from the get-go, this prophecy provides for us a clue to the very nature of Jesus' ministry. The initial reference to the gospel of Jesus Christ is referred to here as a way. There's nothing mystical, mystical about it. It is incredibly straightforward. Mark is talking about the way of salvation made possible by God through Jesus Christ. Mark continues this theme as well in the second half of his gospel, where when he uses the word on the way, speaking of Jesus and his disciples as they are on their way to Jerusalem, the point that he is making is that he is there on the way for the fulfillment of the mission that he has been called to. Namely, it is this, that in Mark, the way of God is ultimately the way of Jesus to the cross. It gives significant meaning and it gives significant context to the fact that the ministry of John the Baptist is to prepare the way for the arrival of the Messiah, for the arrival of Jesus, and for Jesus' journey to the cross where he will make a way of salvation for the world. And he continues now in Mark chapter 1, verses 4 through 5, and talks about John, the messenger. He says, beginning in verse 4, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all of the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. There's a very interesting thing to me as we walk through this. We see that it says John appeared baptizing in the wilderness. What I find interesting about that statement is that the wilderness, and many scholars talk about this, is the wilderness repeatedly represents in Israel's history a place of repentance, but also a place of God's grace for his people. The truth is, is when you read through the Old Testament, even in the New, God taught his people some very difficult and yet important and refining lessons in the desert. Places that were difficult, places that were uncomfortable, that took his people away from their comforts so that they would hear and see him clearly. It's interesting that it seems this is the same way that he continues to work even in us in our day and age. That there are many times where when Christ, when God wants to do a work inside of our hearts, he takes us to a place of the desert, a place away from the comforts of our lives so that we can see him and hear him more clearly. For me, one of those times was when we moved to Toledo. I know I moved from a desert of California to Toledo, not to anything mean about Toledo, but it was a desert season for Rochelle and I. We were sitting at dinner with some friends the other night recounting those first five years together and just how difficult they were for us. From what happened with my job and the pain that, that took place there to 
the separation from family as God called us away from our family for years, all of the feelings that we're dealing with, the loneliness that we dealt with, it was a desert season in our lives. And yet as I look back on that season, I can honestly tell you that God taught me more about himself and more about myself than I could have ever imagined and more than I probably ever would have experienced in the setting that I was in with my family and my comforts in California. And the truth is, if I were really honest with you, I have felt over the last few weeks like I'm going through a desert season. There are a lot of great things that are happening, things in my life that are exciting, and yet I have felt this desert season sitting on my shoulders, and I find that in the same way many of us experience these things in our lives, what we want most of all is to get out of those desert moments because we see them as a curse. We see them as something that is just a, uh, something that distracts from where we're headed and the things that we want to do. But what if we saw them as they really are? You're going through a desert season, I'm sure, or you've been through one before. What is the desert that you're walking through today? What is that hard situation where God has you out of that place of comfort and you're struggling? Why is that there? Have you been in that place of saying, God, why can't you just let this cup pass from me so I can get back to the good life that I had? I'm convinced that we need to see those seasons as they really are. An opportunity for us to know and to see God in a different way. To have the noise of our happy routine lives that seems to deaden our senses removed so that we can hear, so that we can know, and so that we can see God in a new way, so that we can see ourselves as we really are and seek God in repentance, so that we can experience the depth of his grace and his restoration. And when we think this way, we realize that desert moments are not a curse, but ultimately they are a blessing sent from God as he seeks to deepen our faith and our trust and to show us more about who he is and who we are so that we will surrender more of our hearts and our lives to him and experience all of the blessing that he has for us. In the same way, John summons the people away from the routines and comforts of their urban homes, from the shadow of the temple where they go through their routine traditions of worship in the temple in Jerusalem, and he calls them out to that place of the wilderness or the desert where God often does the refining work in the lives of his people. And it tells us that he preached a baptism to them of repentance for the forgiveness of their sins. What I want you to catch when we see that that was the calling that was put on John, his letter B is this, is that John's ministry of preparation focused on transformation of the heart. The calling that God had given him was to help transform the hearts of the people. You know, in ancient times, an envoy of an arriving king would often go before them. And what they would do is they would travel the roads that the king was going to travel and remove all obstacles that might possibly be in the path, making sure that people were ready to receive the king. And I want you to think about it in these terms because John as well was called to do this same thing, to prepare the way of the messianic king. He did so by calling the people to repent of their sin and to receive God's forgiveness. And I want you to think about this word repentance for just a moment. What does that word mean? Write this down. 
The word repentance literally means to change one's mind or to alter one's understanding. It's not just a, hey, oops, I'm sorry I did something wrong. I'll try not to do that again. It literally means to have a change take place within your heart of your understanding and of the very core of who you are and how you live your life. In other words, John's, John wasn't just calling people to go to the desert to get a lecture on how to follow the rules a little bit better. He wasn't just trying to scold them and how they needed to try harder. Certainly, that was what the religious leaders might have done. They wanted people to just hold to the law, to white knuckle it, to do the best they could, and to try harder even when they couldn't. John wasn't asking people to just will themselves to follow rote rules. What he was calling them to, his ministry, which would be the ministry of Jesus Christ, was to call people to have a literal change of their minds, of their understanding. And ultimately, their hearts. Why? Because when God gets a hold of your heart, there is nothing you can do. He will change you. I believe that this is the ministry that God has called me to. He asks for it in my own life, that I would surrender my heart and allow him to change and to transform me. But years ago, when we were moving into the unfinished initiative, as I prayer walked around this building, I so clearly heard the Lord tell me, cultivate my people's heart for me. I will take care of the rest. And it is so clear when you read the pages of Scripture from the Old Testament through the New and through Jesus' life and all that he accomplishes, what Jesus and what God wants is your heart. Because when he has your heart, it is then that he has the ability to change and to transform you where you begin to love Christ more than you love the world. And it tells us that this is the message that John is giving to the people. And it says that as people repented, as they had this change of heart and this change of mind, that they were being baptized. Now, baptism was not necessarily ordinary within Judaism in those days, but there was one close parallel to John's baptism that was the, and it was this, it was a one-time washing of Gentile proselytes. We know baptism to be getting in the water and, and being dunked and being brought up, and so there was a similar thing that took place with Gentiles. It symbolized the Gentiles' rejection of their paganism and their acceptance of true faith. But it was a ceremony that marked outsiders becoming a part of God's chosen people. For a Gentile to be baptized would have been nothing out of the ordinary, completely acceptable. But John's call was for Jews to be baptized, and this was radical. It was completely different than anything they would experience. Here's why. It required Jews to see themselves as outsiders who must acknowledge that they were no more fit for the Messiah's kingdom than was a Gentile. And you know if you read scripture, that was a big jump for a Jew to make. John's baptism directly confronted the religious hypocrisy that permeated Judaism. Neither being a descendant of Abraham nor an ardent follower of the law, that none of it was sufficient grounds to gain admittance into God's kingdom. Rather, what it required was an internal change of a person's heart. And an initial evidence of that genuine heart transformation was a willingness to be baptized. The whole thing of self, those who had self-righteous for pride, they remained. It would never go through baptism, which would be considered to be a public humbling act. But for others, those whose minds had truly turned to forsake their sin and their pride, 
would eagerly declare themselves to be no better than Gentiles, that they were sinners who recognized their unworthiness and their need for God. They would go to be baptized. Thus, what we see, letter C, what baptism was and still is today is a symbol of moral and spiritual renewal. When we read about baptism in the New Testament, there was never this like separation between like I become a Christian and then 20 years later I decide to get baptized. It was almost immediate. And this morning as we think about baptism, I just want to answer a couple questions for you about what baptism is today and how we practice that as a church. This morning during our first service, we had a baptism class that was going on for adults. I'm super excited. I think we've got about 20 to 25 people already that are going to be baptized uh, in just two weeks from now at the end of the month. Super excited as they're going to get up and declare uh, just their love for the Lord and their surrender of their hearts to him. Uh, Everyone from young children to adults, it's going to be great. But in this baptism class, uh, we've been talking about some questions that people people often ask about baptism. I want to give some clarity this morning. Uh, One of the questions that is often asked is this, is who should be baptized? And my simple answer to that question is this, everyone who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ should be baptized. Full stop. If you've never been baptized as a follower of Jesus Christ, I can't encourage you enough to pause and to take a moment and to reflect on its necessity for your life. Baptism is one of the single most important public proclamations of faith that you will ever make. And I tell people when they get baptized, this will be a significant moment if you allow it. If it's not just a tradition or something that you're doing, it will be a significant moment in your life between you and God. As you declare publicly to other people, I believe in Jesus. I believe that he died and rose again. And I am surrendering my heart and my life to him. But I think there's a second important question that often follows with this, is who should be baptized? Everyone. But then I'm often asked, does baptism save you? And I want to make this abundantly clear. The scriptures do not say that baptism saves you. What saves you? Faith in Jesus Christ alone. But baptism was and is an essential proclamation of the decision that you have made to surrender your heart and your life to Jesus. And the reason it's so important is because not only did Jesus himself model it, but he called his followers to practice it and to baptize all who would put their faith in Jesus Christ. One of the things that I see with baptism is this, that there are three important things that are happening in baptism. The first thing is this, is that the person that is being baptized is declaring publicly before God and the church that they have submitted and surrendered their heart to Christ as Lord of their life. It is an essential and special moment. But secondly, for the person that has already been baptized, the believer who has followed the Lord in baptism, when we get to witness and encounter a baptism together within the body of Christ, it is an encouragement in our own walk with the Lord as we recall all that Christ has done in our lives, how Christ was buried and raised again to life, and the ways in which he has rescued us from sin and from ourselves. And it brings encouragement and growth in our own hearts and lives. But as well, thirdly, and I believe so important. That baptism is essential as well for the unbeliever to witness it. Because baptism puts the gospel clearly on display as a testimony to the transforming power of God in our lives. That public proclamation that you make in baptism, is, it's, it's for you. It is for the encouragement of the body. But it is for the non-believer to see and to understand the goodness of God and what Jesus has done for them. Another question that I get asked regularly is this, is do I need to be baptized if I was sprinkled or baptized as a baby? I recognize that we grow up 
Uh, or, I'm sorry, I recognize that, that we live in Toledo, a place that, uh, that is, has a lot of people that are Catholic. Many of you grew up in the Catholic Church, and this question is asked often. And here's the deal. To answer this question, I would just simply ask you another question as an answer. Was your sprinkling or baptism after you believed in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for salvation or before? You see, what we see in Scripture is that we are called to be baptized as an obedience after we have come to faith in Jesus, not before. It is a public proclamation of a choice that we have made in our own lives to follow Jesus. And certainly, another question that arises is this, is do I need to wait a certain amount of time to be baptized after becoming a Christian? And the answer to that is no. The only requirement is that you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sin, that he was raised to life, conquering sin and death, and that you have made the decision to surrender your life and place your faith and trust in him for salvation. And we see all throughout the scripture that immediately when people came to faith, they went, they found water, and they were baptized. The most common one that comes to mind is in Acts chapter 8 where Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch have a conversation as this Ethiopian eunuch has been uh, reading and studying the scriptures and has questions, decides to put his faith in Jesus, and they find water and he is baptized immediately. Why? And, and the reason I share this, guys, is because I grew up in a church where oftentimes, like, it was practiced that, like, you didn't get baptized until you were mature enough, until, like, you had spent enough time kind of proving that you were there. That's not biblical if you really think about it, because people would come to faith, and it was that moment of proclamation that says, I have cognitively and with my whole heart and life made a decision to surrender to Jesus, and I want people to know. And that is what it is. And I would tell you this morning, if you have never followed Jesus in baptism, make that decision today. You don't have to go to the class that we're doing on Sunday mornings. We're going to do it again next Sunday before the following week where we baptize people. But if you've never made that decision to have this marker and moment in your life, contact me this week. Shoot me an email at the office. Give me a phone call. I would love nothing more than for you to make that decision to honor Christ and to make that public proclamation of your faith in him. Baptism was and still is a symbol of moral and spiritual renewal in our lives. And as the passage continues in Mark chapter 1, verses 7 through 8, it tells us that as John continued to preach, he said, after me comes one, comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. What I love is that John has come with this powerful ministry where he is, has crowds just streaming out of Jerusalem and Judea and coming out into the wilderness. He's baptizing them for the repentance of their sins is that he doesn't make it about himself. It is always and only about Jesus. And he clearly expresses, humbling himself, that there is one who is going to come a Messiah, the one who is coming to bring the salvation of God. While I baptize you with water, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will bring about that transformation in your life. I love, letter D, the humility here, because John kept the coming king as the focal point of his ministry. He keeps the focal point on Jesus. And now as we continue and move through the passage, we see that we have this setup that Mark has done to help us to understand not only who Jesus is with the first statement, 
and then to understand the prophecy that was given and how John is an active participant in the fulfillment of this prophecy, we see, Roman numeral number three, that Jesus' baptism was the single most important coronation in all of history. Jesus shows up as John the Baptist is out in the wilderness baptizing people for the repentance of sin and Jesus comes to be baptized. Now, if you've been in the news, if you've been watching on, uh, online or watching on TV, you know that there is a big coronation coming up over the Great Pond, right? We've got uh, King Charles that is going to be coronated. And let me tell you, man, as I watch the news with that stuff, there's a whole lot of drama going on, isn't there? Like, who's going to be invited to the party? Will his son get the invite after writing such a horrible book about his daddy? Well, anyway, will he, will he get invited? Who are the people that are in the in crowd that will be present? Uh, how much, I mean, think about how much money is being spent on this incredible celebration of the coronation of King Charles. And compare that to this. Jesus' baptism, the single most important coronation in all of history. And it comes in a place of great humility where it isn't the crowds and the A-listers that are invited in or money that is poured into it, but a significant moment where God says, this is my son. In Mark chapter one, verses nine through 11, Mark says this, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Three things that I want you to hear this morning in this section that really stand out to me about Jesus' baptism. Letter A, what Jesus does in this passage is different than what you see in our world today. King Charles, it's all about him. It's all about the party. It's all about who's going to be there. But letter A, Jesus identified himself in this baptism with the sinners that he came to save. What stands out to me is this, is that Jesus participated in what was a sinner's baptism. This baptism was meant for people who were not right with God, that they would come, that they would repent of their sins, and that they would get their hearts right with God. And Jesus himself, who had no sin, comes and participates in this very act, identifying himself completely with those whom he had come to save. And what's interesting to me is if you go over to the book of Matthew, Matthew is like, the book of Mark is like the small bite-sized nuggets of the story. That's the way Mark writes. He gives very little detail, but covers a lot of ground. Matthew, super verbose, talks about a lot of the same things, but gives a lot more detail. And in Matthew chapter three, we see that he, Matthew actually says that at Jesus' baptism, John tries to deter Jesus from getting baptized. He's like, no, 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 wait a second. This doesn't make sense, right? You are the sinless one who has been sent by God. How in the world are you going to be baptized in a sinner's baptism, let alone I myself, a sinner, baptizing you? And he says, you should be the one baptizing me. This doesn't even make sense to John. But what's incredible is that Jesus himself, in this act, comes down to your and my level and says, I am in this with you. The writer of Hebrews says it this way in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, 
but we have one who was tempted in every way that we are yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. What the writer of Hebrews so eloquently expresses to us is that Jesus himself has done everything he possibly can to identify with us as sinners. He left the very throne room of heaven, a place that the Bible tells us Jesus sat with the Father, surrounded by the heavenly host that worshiped around the throne, worshiped God day and night, the perfection of heaven, where there's no sin, no pain, no evil. And what does it say? He came down to a broken world that rejected him. He came to be one of us, to identify with us. That when we look at Jesus, that we would know he gets us. He understands our difficulties, our struggles, our temptations, the things that break our hearts. And it says here that not only can he sympathize with our weaknesses and that he was tempted as we are, but because of who he is and what he has done, that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. He does this so that you can come to him in confidence to know that you can find and experience his grace and his mercy and his love in your deepest moments of need. Jesus has identified himself with the sinners that he came to save. And letter B, in his baptism, he foreshadows the extent to which he would identify with us as sinners. You see, the baptism of going down into the water and coming up is a symbol of his death, but also of his resurrection. Jesus had come, and John had come to prepare the way, the way ultimately to the cross. And this is visibly seen and displayed at Jesus' baptism as it foreshadows the fact that he will one day go to die for sinners. And let her see what I believe is just an incredible, powerful moment that I wish I could have witnessed with my own eyes. There are three powerful signs that confirmed the inauguration of the king and his kingdom, where God puts his stamp on his son. As Jesus rises up from the water, it tells us that the heavens tore open. I can't even imagine what that would have looked like. And that this very spirit of God descended on him like a dove, and then the voice of God spoke audibly and said, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Mark has begun this book asking you a question. Who do you say that Jesus is? And this morning, he wants you to understand that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior of the world, who humbled himself from the very throne room of heaven to come down and to live as us and to be put to death at the hands of his creation so that he could pay the punishment for our sin, that we would be restored in our relationship with God, literally, that he would make the way of salvation. Mark has been clear. And what you are going to see in the weeks to come as we continue to travel through this gospel together is that Mark is now going to take and give you the proof that is in the pudding. He's going to have you look at Jesus's life and see his character, his power, 
and every single thing that he has done to help us to come to a place where we will have a deeper love and appreciation for the person of Jesus, that we would surrender and commit our hearts to him. And so I close with these three questions for you this morning. Number one, if you are not a believer in Jesus this morning, will you choose to believe that Jesus was sent by God for your salvation? As we move through this series together, I I would love for you to come back and participate with us. And if you're not at that place of saying, I wanna make that decision today, which you can, would you investigate the words of scripture because Mark has made a bold claim and he looks at you and says, I'm gonna prove it to you. Number two, for those of you in this room that are a Christian, I believe that what Mark is asking us is very clear. In the same way that he asked the Jews of that day, will you allow yourself to be satisfied with a faith that focuses on self? Or will you truly give yourself and your heart and surrender to Jesus? And lastly, number three, I would ask you, if you haven't been baptized, what is holding you back from making this proclamation of your faith? Church family, I'm excited to go through this series together because I believe that as we come to a deeper understanding and appreciation of who Jesus is, that if we will surrender our hearts, that God will radically transform our lives. Would you pray with me? Lord, I love you. Lord, I love your word. Thank you for giving it to us. Thank you, Lord, for the words of Mark and how he so boldly proclaims who you are. Thank you, Lord, that in the weeks to come, we're going to be able to walk through and we're going to be able to see everything that Jesus did, who he is, but not just what he did in scripture, but who he is for us today. And Holy Spirit, I would ask that as we journey through the scriptures together, that you would prick our hearts, that you would move us as well, Father, to a place of repentance, a changing of our mind, literally a transformation of our hearts that we would move to a place of greater surrender, that we would not seek our pleasure and our desires and our hope and our security and all of our joy in the things of this world, but ultimately that we would find them in you and in your son, Jesus Christ. Because not only are they meant for today, but they are meant for eternity. And so Lord, begin that work as we understand who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.
close our service this morning again. Uh, if there's anyone that is here that would have any prayer needs or requests, whether it be for healing or just things that you've been working through with the Lord and you would like prayer, our prayer team would love that opportunity to pray with you this morning. Uh, Paul and Dana Schwer will be here uh, up at the front. We can pray here in this room, go off to our prayer room. Uh, they would love to lead you there. So please come forward at the end of the service if you have any prayer needs. One of the things that you heard in our video at the beginning of the service is that there is a uh, scripture reading plan inside of your worship guide. Oops, it didn't get there. But let me just give you a quick picture. You'll have it next week. One of the things that uh, we want to do as we go through the series is be reading the scriptures together before we come together. And so we're going to ask you each week to read ahead in uh, the book of Mark and to kind of prepare your own mind and your own heart uh, as we will dig into it together. You can do this as life groups. You can do this as a family. You can do it as an individual. would encourage you to do this. And next week in preparation, take some time to read through Mark chapter 1, catch up and also Mark chapter two together. And uh, we'll have that uh, sheet for you next week. And uh, as well, you'll see that as we go through the series together, we're gonna kind of go chapter by chapter. Um, we're gonna cover uh, segments of each chapter. And then I know that we're also gonna have like life group questions that people can grab and take with them that will cover, cover other parts as well. But we really want to dive deep together into this, especially in this first section, as we understand to a deep degree who Jesus is, seeking to allow him to change and transform our hearts. So I pray that you'll engage with us in that. And church family, as you go out today, I pray that you would go experiencing the beautiful truth that Jesus is your savior and allow that to change and impact the way you live, but also how you share that truth with others. God bless you. Have a great week serving the Lord. And we'll see you next Sunday.